Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Daniel Smith. With us today is Barbara Herman, Griffin Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Law at the University of California, Los Angeles. And she's here to discuss gratitude. Barbara Herman, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, I think gratitude is a pretty intuitive, everyday concept, um, what it would be to express thanks. But maybe just to get the ball rolling, what would be some examples of expressing gratitude or situations that call for people to express gratitude? Well, at the end of today's conversation, I'm trusting that you'll thank me. Yeah, we'll see. Um, I mean, see how it goes. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. Um, and you'll express gratitude. So one thing that I would want to distinguish from the beginning is the difference between an expression of gratitude and something a little bit more complicated, which is sometimes called the debt of gratitude. And here's the difference. So we go through the world, through the day, meeting people, somebody drops something, you pick it up and you hand it to them, they say thank you, we all go on our way, everything is fine, nothing more. Um, it would be weird if I did that for you, picked up your fallen papers and you just glared at me and said nothing, so we expect something. Uh, but it's just an encounter, it feels like a bit of etiquette. This is the way we handle that sort of case. You're sick and you have the flu and you haven't been able to get out of bed in days and I'm your friend and I call up and I say you need something and you say there's no food in the house and I go shopping for you and I bring the stuff over to your house and you thank me uh, perhaps with a little more warmth than when I just handed you the papers but something else is suddenly going on. It would be odd if you didn't thank me. But it would be now odd in a different way if a month from now, as the flu season progresses, it flips and I'm the one who's sick and you're the one who calls and the conversation goes and I sort of say, oh my God, there's, I've been in a fever for days and days and days. There's nothing to drink or eat. And you say, how interesting. And that's the end of the conversation because we would think, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> um, it's true that when you were sick and I brought you food, I didn't do it in order that when I was sick and talked to you, you would bring me food, but still, somehow, the fact that I did when you were sick and now I'm sick and you could, it really looks as though gratitude is recalling on you to do something for me, even though thanks seemed all that was required in the first place. And that's the moment I think that gratitude gets interesting which is, how did that happen? You know, one person freely benefits another with no expectation of return. It's not like a contract or a promise. And the other person accepts the benefit with the understanding that there's no expectation of return, performs the expressive maneuver, and yet um, they're now in a very different moral relationship to each other in terms of how things are gonna go as their lives go forward, or at least they might be. So. That's what makes gratitude an interesting philosophical question, it seems to me, as opposed to just a feature of our etiquette. That's interesting. So it seems like we have this intuition that if I do somebody a favor, and it's a fully kind-hearted favor, 
I shouldn't expect anything in return. But it seems like what we're saying is, even if I completely, 100%, you know, from the bottom of my heart, help the person and don't expect anything at all in return, we still have this intuition that even then, I'm still conferring some sort of obligation on them, in a way, well, later that, on. That's one possibility. I mean, part of the problem is we don't know what, whether it's a conferring or an adopting or one of these bits of moral mystery where people are going about their business in one way and all of a sudden they're in some transformed situation and we don't know how it happens. I mean, you might, you know, people have worried about the promissory obligation in the same way. You know, how could it be? You know, I utter some words, you hear me utter some words, it's just words between you and me and all of a sudden, if the words that I have to utter is I promise that and then I fill that out, I've really robustly now owe you and that can seem mysterious too. So I see gratitude, though it's not as popular a topic as promise and contract and the like, as having the same sort of interest in sort of philosophically what could underlie this. I should add that um, just as it happens, in the history of philosophy, gratitude was a very important subject. Roman philosophy is filled with discussions of gratitude, Cicero, Seneca, all kinds of people. Aquinas spends vast amounts of time talking about gratitude, Hume, Kant, and they not only talk about it, but they think it's incredibly important. And that ingratitude, the vice associated with gratitude, is one of the darkest things. It's not just a bad, it's really, really dark. For reasons that I don't understand, though would probably attribute to the rise of capitalism and like things in the 19th century, it disappears as a subject of moral discourse. Philosophers stop talking about it. It seems to shift over. If anybody's talking about it, it's in theological discussions or religious homilies. It's just a curiosity. So I'm curious about the vice of ingratitude. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, it does seem that even today, though it's not conceived to be the grave sin it once was, it is looked upon as a serious kind of moral failing, at least on occasions. But I'm wondering what kind of a failing it is. Certainly, if I've done some, something significant for someone and they comport themselves in a really ungrateful manner, they don't thank me, they don't do even small things that they could do for me in return, as one might say, I'll feel affronted, I mean, even offended, but is it right to say that they've wronged me in any way? I mean, what's the nature of their failing? I think that's exactly the right question um, in this space because a further thing that's curious about it is you might think in terms of any loss that you might have suffered, it's certainly no worse than somebody who fails to repay a debt. And the emotional content when you're confronted with ingratitude is way out of line with any, you know, I mean, we're not now talking about saving lives and doing other stuff, but it's way out of line. I mean, it really operates in this space of our normal interaction with each other. So why are we offended? And so the language that you use, I mean, if you, you know, when you go to talk to your friend about what's just happened, I mean, you're indignant, you're angry, you've been offended, there seems to be insult, and that suggests, you know, to moral detective's ears, the people involved have to be engaged in much more than it appears they're involved in. Because it looks as though they're just moving goods and services between them. And we know what goods and services, they're worth so much, you know, and that's all it is. But it's clear that they've moved lots more than goods and services. So on the one hand, it looks as though 
coming to someone's aid is more than providing them with a good and service. That must be it. And that having been provided <laughs> with whatever that thing that isn't just the good and services makes things difficult for the person who's received it. Because it isn't hard, to, I mean, it shouldn't be hard to say thank you. And it shouldn't be hard, uh, unless you're three and four and just learning how to do it. But it shouldn't be, it sh though I, I do note that we spend a lot of time, we middle class people, training our children to say thank you. Really invest a lot in getting this right. <laughs> but anyway, so I take it that the evidence is there in just the sort of thing that you bring up that the parties know, so to speak, without it ever coming up to the surface, that they're in a different space. And so my question is, what could it possibly be? You know, in the in work that I've done, I, I've sort of, you know, tried to speculate. I mean, the view that strikes me to conform best to the phenomena is that one of the things that the benefaction does is put the person who's being helped in a position of dependence. It's a challenge to their hitherto equality. I'm in a position where I can't help myself. You're in a position where you can help me. Except in certain relationships, we don't like being that way. It makes us uncomfortable, and we don't know what to do about it. My friend Immanuel Kant, who um, wrote a little bit about this, thought that the ingrate was somebody who took it all in a way too literally, took him or herself in having been benefited really to have been demeaned, and was ungrateful because the expression of gratitude was to admit it. And whereas if I could just, just keep going and, and pretend it didn't happen, I could in this self-deceptive way. So it then becomes this very complicated thing, which is I know in my own eyes that I've been demeaned. I know that you know whatever I know, after all, you were the benefactor. I'm going to keep switching back and forth about the who's who in this, but hopefully you can follow me. So I know, you know, I know that you know, but I don't want to say it. And in particular, I don't then want to do the next thing because having been put in, in my own eyes, in this hole, I don't see how I can get out of it. I mean, I can't, for example, wish on you the very bad thing that happened to me merely so that I can get out of the hole. I mean, that's just perverse. I mean, you get hit by a car, I pull off on the highway, I dial 911. You, in order to get out of the hole that you've been put in by my help, are going to be wandering around wishing uh, that I have an accident, an accident near enough to you. I mean, this is a very bad situation. And especially, you might think, in um, an egalitarian world where we're not switching places so often, where there are the haves and the have-nots, and the, the trading between the haves and the have-nots tends to go in one way. It's reinforcing something that really is deeply dangerous. I mean, so here I come in my munificence and my wealth, um, and I'm spreading around my, my few of the thousand points of light. You all weren't old enough for that, but it was George Bush the first. Um, you know, and we, we had, we, the wealthy, had this opportunity, and you think, no, on this view, what looks like it's an opportunity for glory is just this dark thing, right? With one hand, we're feeding people, and with another hand, we're throwing them 
down. So I think those philosophers and those theologians who saw that understood why this was such an important, I think if moral phenomena like this has telltales, like on a boat, they're little, they're just little pieces of thread at the top of the mast of the sailboat, but they tell you everything that you need to know about which way the wind is blowing. And so it's not that I'm arguing that gratitude is the most important thing that we positively do to each other or ingratitude is the worst, but I think it is a telltale of something about how what looks to be simple relations between persons on the surface is actually sitting on top of fairly deep moral stuff. But that's a bit of a speech, so I'll stop. So I'm curious about some of the other deep moral stuff that it sits on top of. And one of the things that struck me when we started talking about doing something without any expectation of getting it back or you know the balance being restored or something was that it's not quite the case that I don't have any expectation. I mean, we certainly, the community, has an expectation that those who are benefited in ways that aren't necessarily required of the benefactor will be grateful and will attempt to, I don't know, show that gratitude or restore the balance or what have you. Moreover, when that doesn't happen, it seems like it's not just the benefactor who is a little incensed about it. You know, in our scenario, the benefactor went to a friend and said, like, can you believe this guy? And the friend might also get a little incensed. And that's connected with another phenomenon that strikes me that sometimes you can at least seemingly discharge a debt of gratitude, not by repaying the benefactor, but by doing good for somebody else, by paying it forward or something. And so I'm wondering, when you said, this doesn't just seem to be an exchange of goods or services, there's a lot more and a lot else that's going on, it seems like it's bringing in communal ties in a weird way, communal expectations and shared allegiances for, or is that not right? Oh, quite the contrary. I, I think something there is right. A, a little bit of the concern for me is about the order. So I think that it's certainly the case that uh, as you present it, you know, you talk to the friend, the friend shares your indignation, you know, and he's going to it's going to be posted on Facebook and, right. and these days. So the community does a lot of policing, moral policing. We're, we're attending to who's in and who's out, who's reliable and who isn't. And I think this may not be so much about gratitude. You know, defectors, promise breakers, liars, you know, in a circle of friends, the person who, you know, when you're taking turns bringing drinks to the poker evening, the guy who's always going to forget. You pass that around, um, and either you want to ease the person out of the group, or you always have to have a backup. If George is the guy, somebody's paying attention, or somebody has the job of calling. So a community does a lot of informal moral policing. Informal, I mean, Mill is good about this, talking about the different kinds of sanctions that we have. So that's certainly right. The question for me is really, is the community involved essentially in trying to get gratitude going, or is it just in its policing mode? So once we have gratitude up and going, it's among the ways. I mean, and that's interesting enough. I mean, why should the community give a damn, in a way, whether you and I sort out our gratitude stuff? Now, it might if you thought that what the issue of, of gratitude was was a kind of um, complicated debt and repayment scheme. 
if you thought that what the community had an interest in was our beneficence, and you view beneficence as always a cost and a burden. To be beneficent, I have to either in terms of my time or my goods have less than I would have had if I hadn't been beneficent. And although I'm not expecting a reward, there's a kind of long-term benefit if we live in a community of beneficent persons that's a good to us. It may or may not come about. I'd rather it didn't. In my case, why would I want to be in that position? But if I were, and so you may have the feeling that what we're worried about is the person who responds to benefaction with ingratitude isn't getting it that it's a dyadic thing. That sometimes in your life you're going to be on one side and sometimes in your life you're going to be another. And these are just roles that we shift in and out of. And so that makes it more fundamentally a community virtue. I think it's true that we do think that uh, and, and that we're right to think that. There's something about that. But I don't think that's enough to get at this strange darkness about ingratitude or the weirdness of it. And we can add some other sorts of features. But one, go back to the, um, the paid forward is a fascinating thing. It matters to people. I mean, it's not just from the community's point of view that it's a good thing that we're willing to uh, be benefactors to others than the people who we benefited from. We like it. Paying it forward is an extremely good feeling. I mean, endless amounts of literature and fiction about you know, having been the beneficiary of something and then the person who was your benefactor dies and there you have this thing and you would have, you could have, you were ready, you were happy and, and now what? And then people dedicate themselves, you know, go out of their way to try to find someone to do for what was done to them, but always in relation to the other action. Sometimes it's just an act of now I see the good that I could do, but sometimes I think it feels as though I really want to, um, or simple things. Um, I tell stories about snow. Here we are in Chicago with their app. I tell them in California their jokes. But you're, it's a snowstorm. Your car has been plowed in. Strangers come up, and at least they used to. I don't know any longer what people do in these circumstances, but they used to. You know, strangers would come up, and they'd get filthy and wet while your tires are spinning, and, I, and they'd push you out. And, and you'd feel, if that happened, I mean, just obligated in the storm season. You were never going to see that person again, ever. But it wasn't just a matter of evening out the pushing in the community. It felt as though you were in, there was a sense of the benefaction initiated a sequence that isn't completed for you until you do something else. I like things like that in thinking about moral philosophy because I like thinking about anything that takes one away from assuming that the item of moral investigation is a very finite bit of activity, an episode or an event, important enough as they are, but they're only one kind of thing that shows up in moral activity and moral judgment. And this one looks as though it's got quite interesting temporal dimensions, interpersonal community dimensions that you wouldn't have expected. Yeah, that exact same thing happened to me once. Uh, I was marooned in the suburbs of Detroit once with a friend. We had no car, and we were completely stuck, and, all, and the buses had stopped running. You know, we, we'd forgotten to check the schedules. And these random people just gave us a ride for like 45 minutes back into the city. It was a pretty substantial favor to do to a random stranger. 
And after these two people had done this extraordinarily kind thing for us, my friend and I were debating for a while, like, well, what are we going to do? We're never going to see these people again. You know, how can we repay them? And the best we could come up with is, well, you know, we're going to, like, be sure if we're ever in a position to give everybody a random ride. We, we just got to give some person down the line that random ride and uh, pay it forward, as we've been saying. And, and it's curious because, of course, that has nothing, that, that's really nothing in the expectation of the people who did it. They may or may not have benefited or something like that. Um, so one possibility, I mean, it isn't one that I in particular explored in the paper that you guys looked at, you know, is that part of the insult is generosity, which is part of the impulse to benefaction, is something that we pride ourselves in. It isn't always easy. We're not always the nicest of people. It's our angelic side, sometimes. And it may be that what's so horrible about the ingratitude is it's denied us. We, we want actually to be recognized. So it's a recognitional failing. You should see me for the good person that I am. I'm, I'm not just living in a cash nexus. I'm actually able and willing and, and, and you won't see me. And not being seen for who you are might be a source of this. Though I'm inclined again to think that it's maybe a piece of it but not, not the thing that makes it so hard. And, um, so one of the things that, another thing to focus on in this, just to add another one, is to think about cases where you don't want to say thank you. You yourself don't want to. <laughs> you're, you're on the other side. And then you, you try to figure out, why would you not want to thank somebody? And I think, you know, it's a, an experience. Sometimes it happens between adolescents and their parents. I mean, that's, thinking about adolescents and their parents is always a good place to go to think about the dark side of morality. I mean, they really don't want to be, it's not they don't love their parents, but sometimes to thank them, to just get the relations clear is exactly what they don't want to do because they're struggling against something. Yeah, I, was, um, I was trying to think of a case where I wouldn't want to thank somebody. The best I could come up with was like, if they're an evil person and they help, like if Darth Vader does something <laughs> great for me, I wouldn't want to thank him. I don't know. Yeah. I think you but, actually should. I, maybe yeah, I should, yeah, though. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think you don't want to thank people who you feel are already uh, in the business of lording it over you, and this is just going to make it worse. I think you don't want to thank people where the relationship of gratitude is going to entangle you further. You know, my Aunt Tilly, who has always, you know, wanted to have more to do with my life than I wanted her to have to do with my life, here has an opportunity to help me, and if she helps me, she's got me, and I don't want to be had by her. I've been keeping this distance and this separation, and I would rather suffer whatever I'm suffering than have her in my life. So here, the problem is sometimes, I mean, sometimes we, we manage this by refusing to accept benefits from some people. I have a need, I want the need met, I'm not able to meet the need myself, and you, for some you, are not the person. You know, so, you know, I think of this as the Soprano problem. You did not want Tony Soprano to help you. You just, you know, even if you needed it, because that was really just the end of your life as you knew it. Once you became indebted to him, you were entangled in something that was so complicated, and he was right, and you were wrong about what. So you do that, but my Aunt Tilly being cleverer than all that, and Tony was pretty clever himself, sometimes you can impose a benefit on someone. You know, there they are, unconscious, and you drive them to the hospital. Damn! 
know. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't you have just called 911? <laughs> just left me there. No, you're right, Daniel. I mean, it's a, so this is, an, again, where we're, you can see why um, there's a lot of fun to be had if you, you know, with the right telltale, which hasn't been trampled over by, you know, 10,000 journal articles. You can, everybody gets to play and be creative. Um, but here's an argument for why you want to have a good 911 system, because sometimes it's really better to have a neutral institution. <laughs> Something that we collectively pay for that just shows up. And it's true that we thank the people who carry the stretcher and so on, but we are not incurring debts of gratitude. We know we're not incurring debts of gratitude. We're then just in the expression of gratitude, where the expression really says, I, you know, even though they're just doing their job, and that's often what the conversation looks like also. Very interesting to me too, again, in this sort of moral detection. If somebody does their work, and their work benefits you, and you thank them, they will often rebuff your thanks. Not in a mean way, but they'll try to say to you, I was just doing my job. This wasn't about us. Don't turn this into something about us. And it can be important when you're in a role, I mean, think about an EMT or something like that. It's important that someone, again, be recognized as doing what they're doing for the reasons that they're doing it. What they were doing was not providing a benefaction. They were providing a service. And providing a service is a different moral activity than providing a benefaction, something that they're paid for. It doesn't make what they're doing any less good. So again, in this picture, there's much more to a moral action than the performance and the duty and the checklist of, you know, have you done what you're obligated to do? The, the, as a colleague of mine who uses the term, there's a surround that you have to attend to where there are these moral points of, of interaction. And they are often the things that you look at when what you're trying to do is figure out what's the underlying value that the thing that's on the surface, which is our duty or our obligation, is actually responsive to. Because a duty or an obligation is just a directive. In these circumstances, do that thing or that kind of thing. And the directive doesn't tell you what it's about. Sometimes it's transparent. Debts and promises tend to be more transparent, but sometimes it's not at all transparent about what it's about. And then you have to start digging underneath. But how do you dig underneath? Because it's just sitting there as a directive. And I think this sort of investigation, the kind and the conversation that we're having now, is the way you begin digging. You figure out, is it about the community? Is it about, I think, issues about inequality and dependence? Someone else might argue it's about recognition. All right, so we have a real dilemma here. You know, on the one hand, we kind of want to say, if I do a favor for somebody, they don't really owe me anything because otherwise it wouldn't be a favor and I'd just be sort of manipulating them like a loan shark or whatever. But on the other hand, there's also pressure on going too far with that and saying that when I do a favor for somebody, they owe me absolutely nothing because as you pointed out at the beginning, if they don't even say thank you and just sort of, you know, and express ingratitude, I, the favor doer, feel wronged. On the one hand, we want to say that doing a favor for somebody makes them dependent on me in the future. But on the other hand, we seem to be pushed away from saying that. So uh, how do you think we should try to deal with this dilemma? <laughs> um, equality is the solution, as it is to many things. Minimize inequality and things solve themselves. This is a human condition problem. I am actually, uh, that was a serious remark, said in a jokey way. I seriously do think that the greater and the, the deeper the inequalities that we have, the more things like this are less freighted and 
might actually not be worrisome. But nonetheless, being human beings, we're forever going to drop things, fall down, have cars in the snow. I mean, it's not as if we're going to escape from being in these relations of beneficiary and benefactor. It can be mores and lesses. Um, so the relationship is still there. Though it may, as I indicated just now and also earlier, it may have deeper resonances and be more fraught. The more unequal the general situation is. It may be harder to tolerate local inequalities when they're connected to more global and frightening ones. One. I, the solution, I think, is, is this, um, in the simplest terms. For the moral philosopher, the thing, or, or I suppose the moral psychologist, in, in a different use of moral psychology than is common, but somebody who's actually thinking about what the psychology of moral responses is, is if we can figure out what the nature of the problem is, then we can solve it. So suppose you're me, and I think the problem is that the problem in uh, being the, on the receiving end of a benefaction is that it's a challenge to our sense of ourselves as equals, a challenge to our standing, and one that we really don't know what to do about. Again, the adolescent is the one where this anguish is most acute because they're almost an adult. They can't act. They're not dependent. They need to be, I mean, everything is there, and so it's very, I think, sharp for them. But I think, as with many things, trying to let the relationship be the relationship that it is, is interesting. So one of the things that I think you do is that in being a benefactor in a context in which there's an ongoing relationship, in being the benefactor, you assume an obligation of making yourself available to the person who you benefited so that they actually can do this. You take seriously that both you ought to have helped them, and having helped them, you put them in a complicated moral situation, and there's no good reason why you're not still implicated in the resolution of that situation. Now, it's not the case that you should then drive into a tree so that they can call 911. I mean, there's the ludicrous. But there is a sense that um, when persons interact morally, they are often either changing the terms of a relationship that's ongoing or entering a relationship that they didn't have, and we assume different burdens. So benefaction is a kind of intimacy generator, like it or not. It's one of the reasons I want my Aunt Tilly out of my life, um, because I don't want to be intimate with her in any way. So methodologically, there's a tendency in moral philosophy over many decades now to be primarily interested in either what I call stranger relations, you know, there you are dropping from a cliff. Can I, you know, fire a missile at you? You know, I, I don't know. You know, or we talk about the most intimate things. We talk, we're interested in talking about friendship and the duties and obligations of friendship. The thread that I'm pulling on gratitude, I think, suggests that, now we're entering into, we're complexifying our relations with each other all of the time. And where the community is a community of repetition, say inside a philosophy department where you're all going to be hanging around together for four or five, six more years, these complexifications matter and they build and they're not forgotten and they become part of the community and who can be relied on who can't. And, you know, and then there are stranger cases. So I don't have an answer what's the solution because I don't think there is a solution. I think there's actually something that people work out. So sometimes, and again, we've all had this kind of experience. I help you, suppose, and now we're going, to see, we're going to be seeing each other again. 
and this thing is going, and we're not exactly in the same position. I really do have more resources than you, or a bigger support network. And I can, if you're willing, get you off the hook. You know, I can bring it out into the open. I understand how you feel, but you really don't owe me anything, and I don't want you to. You know, what would serve this relation is that you use the resources and the time that you have, you know, to do the thing. This comes up all the time between faculty advisors and their <coughs> graduate students, right? There's no way you can pay the debt of gratitude to your advisor if your advisor's any good. I mean, it's just hopeless. The amount of time, energy, attention, it's ridiculous. And it's not because it's their role and it's their job because they could do their job with much less. But it's very important in that thing that the, the advisor makes it clear that this isn't gonna be like that. You know, what I want my student to do is to continue the project that we're working on, which is his or her dissertation. And now I'm asking the, the student to reconfigure the way that um, we might be thinking about what's going on. So it may look initially like a benefactor, beneficiary situation. I'm saying, no, let's change the terms. Let's think of it as a common project. If we think of it as a common project, something that we're doing together, we have different roles, but common projects are often like that, then we don't have this view. Because if it's a common project, we're just both trying to make it go forward. And the only interest I have in your relation to what I've given you is whether or not what I've given you helps us, and in particular you, move the project forward. So sometimes there's a, a kind of, it's almost a translation function. It's available to us. We have resources. And when we can move from the benefactor-beneficiary relation to the common project thing, I think we diffuse this. Partly because what we've done in the common project solution is we're equals again, right? If you're in a common project building something with someone, the fact that the other person is stronger, taller, I mean, that doesn't make us less equals in the project. It just means he or she can do the lifting that I can't do, but we're still common players. So that's part of the sense, when I was saying in jest before that equality is a serious thing, it wasn't just about adjusting our incomes. So one of the solutions is to do that. You can't always do it. And then, as I say, sometimes you have to actually put yourself in the way. I mean, I take it if there's been some ongoing asymmetry of you know, the way the flu seasons have hit us, uh, and, and I've been, you know, kind of year in and year out carrying your groceries, and I get the flu, I should probably call you. I might actually prefer calling someone else, all things considered, for my own purposes, but I maybe should call you, let you do it. And so it's, I, I mean, it's like double entry bookkeeping. We have to both keep track a little bit. So we, are, we talk in promises, the importance about the promise, then we talk about whether or not there's uptake. So here we're talking about something similar. There's the benefaction, there's the gratitude, there's the expression of gratitude and the debt. And there's a certain question about uptake and responsiveness. Interesting. So it seems like you're proposing, yeah, sort of a different way of thinking of favors then. It's not like if I do a favor for somebody, that person like has less stuff than I do and I'm giving them some of the stuff that I have so they can have more stuff and therefore I lose some stuff and they gain some stuff. You know, don't have that picture in your head. Rather, have the picture, well, I'm initiating a relationship and that's a collaborative thing between two of us and that's what we're both getting out of it. You know, we're both getting a new relationship. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes I'm just giving you stuff and I, and I have less and you have more. I, wasn't, I don't mean to suggest that this is all it is, but I don't think that we understand 
the nature of what's going on here if we think that there's only one model and only one thing that we're doing. And certainly in the background, um, this matters a lot because if you think about everything in terms of I wind up with a little bit less and you wind up with a little bit more, you're going to think that the only way out of this is to you know, restore an equilibrium like a balance scale to reach the conditions ex ante, as we say, being fancy. And sometimes that's right, but it isn't the picture. It's not that I'm entitled to what I have in some way such that you know, I've put myself in deficit and now I'm in a negative moral position because of you. And the only way out of my negative moral position, injustice or something like that, um, is that you rectify it. No, that's not the only sort of picture. But um, many people who've talked about gratitude have thought this was exactly the story. So it seems like one of the things that's very important to you is to bring out both the variety and the richness of cases of gratitude, but also of other kind of moral interactions. And I think one of the things that struck me about your description of the advisor case is that part of registering the richness of our moral lives brings into view a certain kind of creativity that's available to us, recasting the roles, as you put it. So it's not any longer in our double bookkeeping scheme a relation in which you're benefiting me and I'm therefore in your debt. It's rather one in which we're both collaborating in a project. And so I find that vision of our moral life really appealing. But I'm also wondering what impact that view of things has on the role of a moral philosopher. What are we doing when we're doing moral philosophy if part of what we're trying to take account of is this kind of complicating richness and potential for creativity and structuring relationships? I mean, I, <laughs> in a non-insulting way, I think the answer to your question, Daniel, is what we're trying to do as a moral philosopher is give an account of this richness and this complexity and the potential for creativity. Exactly. So what prompts a question like that seems to me to be possibly two sorts of things. So correct me if I'm wrong. One is you might have a meta-ethical view in which you think that look, best case, we're some kind of a realist. We think that morality is objective and that what we're trying to get onto are the duties and obligations that we have, really. And now you're telling me, well, we kind of get to make it up as we go along. And you might sort of think, that can't be attractive. That would be one impulse. In that impulse, I, I not only might, I will respond with this. You could have this view, be a realist and sort of think we have these duties and obligations. The question is then going to be, do any of our obligations have a structure that in their proper realistic structure allows us to be responsive in particular ways to the circumstances that we're in? Now you can exaggerate that, and I think the answer is yes, I think they're called imperfect duties. I think they're an under-investigated part of the landscape of duties and obligations. I think that's what they're there for. Um, you could go nuts with that view and then you wind up as a kind of particularist and everything is 
about the specifics, but I think of it more as the, <laughs> the relation between physics and engineering. You know, and so we've got our theory, we know the laws of the thing, you know, and then they're the guys who have to build the bridge. And it turns out that, uh, you know, the winds in the channel, they're not quite what we expected, and, you know, this wind and this weather factor and the traffic, and then you begin making adjustments. And there isn't anything that you could have done from the point of view of the theory that would have predicted the outcome. I mean, not humanly, since our theories don't look like that. And so, in certain kinds of theories, you expect that there are going to be points, and the theory has to be able to explain why you get to have adjustments here, but not up here. You don't get to change the laws of physics, and you don't get to change the structure of the promissory obligation, because it would be more interesting between the two of you to have a different one. You don't get to do that. But when it comes to promises between friends, and we're trying to understand what the burden of an obligation on our friend is when a promise has been made, and what we ought to do, because we're going to, there I think we're in spaces in which we both have to honor the structure of the obligation, and also we have some space to be creative. So I'm interested in both ends. I want to describe at the, at the level where we have room for creativity, and then I want to, I want to see what moral structure would you have to have, really have to have, um, in order to give an account of where in the space of morality um, you should do this. Barbara Herman, your prediction was accurate, and you're not going to get out of this interview without us thanking you first, so thank you. You're welcome. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.